Amen. Amen. Morning, everyone. A warm welcome to one and all. Well, we've been going through the book of John, and we've come now to the end of, of John 6. And I suppose what we've seen so far is a kind of a theme in John, and I'm, I'm speaking quite generally here, is that Jesus has performed the sign or a miracle, or, or he makes some kind of claim about himself. And last week, Matt spoke just, just powerfully about Jesus being the bread of life. If you haven't watched that scene, that I really recommend that you do so. And as a result of this, people are drawn to make a decision. That's kind of what we read in John. And we get all sorts of emotions. We get some anger. We get some misunderstanding. We get grumbling. And what we get in the passage we're about to read is the results. We get some, some turbulence. The rubber has hit the road. We get disagreement. We get mass desertion. Actually, we get a really sad outcome. We get a really sad outcome. And what we're about to read contrasts genuine disciples and casual admirers. Genuine disciples and casual admirers. So with that context in mind, with that brief intro, we're going to read the passage, which is John 6, 60 to 71. So it's, it'll be up on the screen, but uh, you... Most of you have these things on your phone these days. If you have a good old paper copy, that would be nice to see as well. So John 6, 60 to 71. On hearing it, and this is what Matt spoke about last week when Jesus said, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in, in me. He's speaking figuratively. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples, and we need to make a distinction here, these are peripheral disciples, not the twelve. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know, and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. And he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve was later to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. You know, my, my daughter's persuaded us to get guinea pigs this year. And so we're now a family of seven. We have Ace and Ferdinando, or Ferdy for short. And we made it really clear that when we got these, these creatures, these lovely creatures, these pets, that they would need to, to look after them, to feed them, water them, change them, or certainly change the hutch anyway, you know, pet them, socialise them. If that's the kind of thing you can do with guinea pigs, I think it is. 
And really, to cut a long story short, it didn't really go to plan. Mez, my wife, and I, we ended up doing quite a lot of the looking after. And I don't mean to be, to be harsh to children, but they can generally be quite, quite fickle. Do you know, I can remember being really very fickle. I would persuade my parents to get me a toy as if it would complete me. Oh, I need this toy. I'm desperate for this toy. And then, of course, I would tire of it very quickly and move on to the next thing. And so we are, we're training, particularly our girls at the moment, in relation to the guinea pigs. We're, we're reminding them of the love that they have for these pets. And that the more time they spend with them, the more time they want to spend with them. That's the plan anyway. And you know, we see, we see some fickleness in this passage. And so the first part of the talk, I've given this the title, Dissecting the Drift to Desertion. You know, unlike Matt, I've got no issue using alliterative titles, but at, at least this is D, not P, hey Matt? But actually, I'm going to be spending some time going back through the verses in John 5 and 6, where I, where I think we see some characteristics of this. I'm going to tell you right now, we're not going to be spending a huge amount of time in John 6, 60 to 71. We're going to spend some time looking at this, though, because uh, this is where I think I've been led. So I'm not going to apologize for that. But we're not talking pets here. This is really quite serious stuff. Um, I doubt I'm alone in, in wondering how events in this passage even happened. How do we go from the healing of a lame man... Jesus walking on water, uh, the physical feeding of not 5,000, it's probably more like 15 to 20,000, isn't it, because of the women and the children, to most of those thousands deserting Jesus. I mean, have you ever realized that? Pretty much all of those people he fed, they left him. They deserted. Uh, it tells us, doesn't it, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And I struggle with this, do you? I struggle with this when I read it. But we get to this situation which I think is just simply grievous. It's, it's sad. And so I want to dig down into the context of this desertion because, lo and behold, our, our human nature hasn't changed that much. What can we learn from this? And what is God saying to you and to me and to us about our character today? And let me encourage you to do that difficult but necessary thing. That difficult but necessary thing. Which is to ask the Spirit, am I prone to this? What are you trying to teach me and mold in me today? Maybe this is something for, for next week or the week after with life group discussion. And you know what, guys? This passage is hard. This passage is hard because it makes us look in the mirror. But I think it's hard. It's certainly hard for me because it makes us think of those who have left. It makes us think of those who have come a certain distance towards Jesus and then they've turned back. And I've seen it several times and I suspect you probably have as well. And I will confess to shedding tears as I wrote this, thinking of, of loved ones, of friends, who for that, that, that's happened to them. So I do want to speak in some, to some of these warning signs. It might be for, for you today, it might be for, for others that, you are, that you're discipling at the moment or coming alongside. But that's what we need to do. We do need to come alongside to love and to disciple, don't we? 
But I do want to stop right there and remind ourselves, because I, was, I, I had a timely reminding this week of John 5, 44, where it says, no one can see, sorry, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I just thought I, I needed to remind us about this. And these words can be hard as well, but ultimately, as, as followers of Jesus Christ, we experience a wonderful dance with God, but it is God who leads God draws people to himself. We play our part, and we're intentional as we can be, but ultimately there is a lack of control, and that's hard for us, certainly hard for me. And I want to speak into this from a few contexts. I want to speak into the context of Judas. Judas is mentioned in the passage, isn't he? And I don't think it's a coincidence that John includes Judas when you consider the theme of today, which is desertion, which is kind of betrayal. And we don't, know a huge, we don't know a huge amount about Judas, do we? We don't know a huge amount. What we do know is, is that he was one of the 12. He was one of the 12. You know, he walked and he talked with Jesus for three years. He saw and he heard amazing things yet. Yet he sold Jesus out and betrayed him when he realized that Jesus wasn't going to conform, when he wasn't going to provide perhaps the outcome that he wanted. And there are those in the service of God who mess up big time. We've seen it, haven't we? We've seen it in the news. And this is when we say, isn't grace the best of things? And I say this in the context that if you're anything like me, then you have the capacity to be a Judas, the capacity to desert, whether it's big or whether it's small. The fact of the matter is, I went AWOL for six years in my teenage years. God is gracious. I say this in the context of our growing church. I say this in the context of our growing church where we need to be generous with our time, our love, our compassion for each other and those around us. Do you know, the staycation theme is about living generously as God's people. And as I prepared this, I felt the Spirit just prompting us to go again. To go again. To be generous and loving in our discipleship of others. To be outward looking. And you know what? That involves honesty with each other, doesn't it, at times? It involves looking out for each other. Leading each other towards obedient trust in Jesus. Obedient trust in Jesus, which is where I'm going to be landing today. And so, what do we see? This drift to desertion. There's five things I've picked out. I'm going to be fairly brief because actually we have considered these. Uh, and we've covered much of this content, albeit in a, in a slightly different way. So the first thing I think we see is that they make demands of Jesus based on his power. They make demands of Jesus based on his power. They seem overly interested in the supernatural. John 6:14. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, that's the feeding of the 5,000, by the way, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. They wanted Jesus for power. They wanted to make him king by force, most likely, most likely to head up an army against the occupying Romans. But what's the heart? What's the heart? It's like they are saying, give us what we want. Use your power for our ends, and we will believe in you. 
I mean, the phrase that came to my mind was name it and claim it. Even after feeding them and challenging them to believe in him, they ask a little later on in John 6.30, what miraculous sign then would you give that we may see it and believe you? Which is the point where I go, what? You stare at your Bible in frustration and disbelief. Hang on, he's just fed you. What are you doing? A serious question though is, do we make... Do we make demands of Jesus? Can we sometimes force our agenda on Jesus in a, in a bid that he conforms to us rather than the other way around? The fact is Jesus will become king, won't he? Jesus will become king, but on very different terms. His terms, God's terms, which are also actually the best terms for us. He does so by laying down his life, by offering life in all of its fullness. Those are his wonderful terms. Secondly, they are too caught up in the past to see the promised future fulfilled. They are too caught up in the past to see the promised future fulfilled. Throughout these exchanges that we read of in John 5 to 6, Jesus is speaking to Jews whose identity is very much wrapped up in following the law of Moses. It's wrapped up in the exodus. It's wrapped up in the parting of the Red Sea. It's wrapped up in manna from heaven. And the amazing thing is, of course, that Jesus speaks and acts into all of those events and surpasses them. He's superior to Moses. He makes that claim, doesn't he? I'm superior to Moses. He shows his power over creation by walking on water. He feeds the 5,000. He offers spiritual freedom and nourishment as the bread of life. And of course, Jesus is the one that Moses foretold. This is Moses writing in Deuteronomy 18.5. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. And they acknowledge it, don't they? The crowd says, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. But they don't hold that belief for very long. And Jesus recognizes their attitude and says in John 545, your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes are set. On whom your hopes are set. Do you know they failed to see the spiritual reality to which the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 pointed. Instead, they take offense, they end up deserting. They are too attached to the past to see the promised Messiah in their midst. You know, I don't know everyone's past in this room, but I want to ask the question whether you are overly preoccupied with the events and traditions of your past that you struggle to look forward to greater hope. If that's you, I I really want to encourage you this morning to do something about it. I got a sense when I was writing this that there are some people who've waited too long. Not too long, you've waited long enough. Let me rephrase that, you've waited long enough. But you know, there's something profoundly healthy and important in our walk with Christ about looking back with gratitude to look forward with greater hope. Looking back with gratitude to look forward with greater hope. The family meeting on Sunday night was such a timely example of this. I mean, I suspect quite a few of us, I certainly was, uh, were glassy-eyed as we took the time to listen to the story of God's church and what he has done in the 12 or so years, this base for mission, 
as we look back with the purpose of looking forward for what God has got for us next. When you look back to look forward, you often receive a new perspective on the blessings in your midst. The Jews, they had the greatest blessing and gift ever given in their midst, but they rejected him. Let me encourage you to look back in gratitude in order that you you may look forward with greater hope. Thirdly, they don't seem to have a heart that's inclined to worship. They don't seem to have a heart that's inclined to worship. You know, there's, a, there's an interesting contrast here. And, and I think it's subtle, but I think it's also revealing. And I think it tells us something about the drift of desertion. So my question is, what do the crowd do when they're fed miraculously? See, I, I think that an appropriate response would have been worship. You may disagree with me, but that would have been my response, I think. But what's their response? And what does it reveal? Well, rather than worship, they seem, in the wider context of the passage, they seem more interested in questioning and testing and making demands of Jesus. John 6, 25. Rabbi, when did you get here? John 6, 30. What miraculous sign will you then do? John 6, 34. From now on, give us this bread. Testing, questioning, making demands. I just want to do a really quick contrast to Matthew 14, 32, 33, which is the same context. It's when Jesus is walking on water. Do you remember this? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat, what did they do? They worshipped him, saying, truly you are the son of God. That is their response to the miraculous and awesome power of God. The question is, is our heart postured towards worship of him or are we overly preoccupied, overly preoccupied with testing, questioning and making demands of him? And actually this leads on into our next, into my next point, which is probably a more obvious one which is that they want Jesus for material things and prosperity. They want Jesus for material things and prosperity. John 6, 26, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you were looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the meal and loaves and you had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. Jesus points out that they're chasing the meal, they're chasing the meal ticket. They don't want the spiritual nourishment he brings. They just want the physical. And the physical, of course, is, is temporary. Do you know, until his refusal to be made their king, they'd heard him gladly, hadn't they? But when he put them off by his insistence on the superiority of the bread of eternal life and the identification of that bread with his flesh, they lost interest. And do you know, folks, prosperity and material things are really tempting. I mean, they were then. They are now. Uh, and we can use our God-given gifts, of course, to gain both. We can be blessed and just gently forget he who blesses. And uh, when I look around at the oak, and I uh, potentially risk offending a few people here, uh, if I do, forgive me. But there's quite a few of us just approaching middle age. And I count myself among you guys. You know, I'm 38, I'm 39 in a few weeks if you want to buy me a birthday present. 
I'm approaching middle age. And do you know what? With that, and I speak from personal experience here, with that, I think can come an increased desire to, to establish certain foundations. I need to start thinking about a pension. Children's education. Career prospects. Where do I want to be? Rising that ladder. The general business of family life. If you've got kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I'm not saying that these are wrong in of themselves. Please hear me. That, I'm not saying they're wrong. But what I am saying is that if they prevent us seeking God during this very short stay on planet Earth, then I'd challenge you to consider whether they are too much of a motivating factor. There's this great quote from C.S. Lewis. It's a serious quote, ultimately. But he says, The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather for the devil. Let's think about that. Fifthly, Jesus is just too extreme, isn't he? He's just too extreme. John 6, 53, 57. This is what, certainly what Matt spoken to last week. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. And their response is, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? They basically say, who can stomach it? I'm off. And what do we think here? Cannibalism? Don't think so. I think it's, uh, it's very unlikely that they took Jesus literally. But they can't fathom what he's trying to say. Even as a metaphor, even speaking figuratively, this is just too much for them. And, and we need to be honest and say that Jesus is too extreme and offensive for some in our society. This was and will always be the case. But here's my point. Here's my challenge. Because what do we do about this? When we come across a difficult verse, something that jars... What do you do? Do you avoid it? Do we water it down? Do you know what I've seen happen with those who have deserted and just walked away is that the word of God, the Bible, tends to be gently left behind. People stop asking the question, uh, of, the question of the spirit to help them illuminate it. They stop reading it. It loses authority. They find it offensive. It's too extreme. That's one of the patterns I've seen in people I've seen just drift away. But let's not forget that Peter rightly acknowledges in this passage that Jesus has the words, the words of eternal life. And for me, this is one of the tragedies of this passage. It's these fringe disciples who desert, they stop asking questions. They don't say, this is hard, but explain more. They don't say, help us understand. They say... This is hard. Who can accept it? And they walk away. And in contrast, we learn this valuable lesson from the disciples, don't we? How often did the disciples say, uh, yeah, what do you mean? <laughs> Teach us. What did that parable mean? Teach us how to pray. And even when 
they got it wrong, which of course they did, Jesus has so much time and grace for them, doesn't he? A dissection of the drift towards desertion. The second half of this talk, I really want to talk about a devoted and determined disciple. I want to contrast. To whom shall we go? Do you know, we see the contrast. We see a response from the disciples who have already begun to experience the life-changing properties of the words of Jesus. They haven't got everything yet, have they? They haven't got everything yet. But they'd seen enough. And that's really important. They'd seen enough. And we don't need to see everything to know enough. We don't need to see everything to know enough. But they had seen and heard enough that they knew Jesus could supply them with spiritual food, which brought much more enduring satisfaction and joy than material bread. And of course, as ever, we learn so much from them. We, we learn from their outspoken spokesman, Peter, don't we? And it should encourage us all. It should encourage us all because we're all at different stages in our walk with Christ. And the disciples, I mean, they don't fully get it at this point, not by a long chalk. They don't get it when Jesus dies, do they? They go off and hide. They're petrified. They're scared. They think it's game over. But ultimately, from a place of obedient trust, they came to understand the opposite of those who have deserted. They came to a point of obedient trust where they sought to ask of Jesus, what is your will and your plan for me rather than, here's our plan, I'll make it happen. And of course they all go on to see Jesus give everything at the cross. And for the true disciple, Jesus is everything. And we see this in the remaining time the disciples had on earth. We saw that commitment and what they did and how they spent the rest of their lives, how they died. All but one were martyred. And Jesus asks, you do not want to leave too, do you? Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. What powerful response. What a powerful set of responses. Lord, to whom shall I go? This is one of the biggest questions anyone faces in life. This is one of the biggest questions anyone faces in life. To whom shall I go? To what shall I go? And if you don't go to him, you're going to go somewhere else. You're going to go to someone else. You're going to go to something else. And the question is, what are you going to find? What are you going to find? And I think the answer is provided in Philippians 3, 8. Even more, I consider everything to be nothing compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. To know him is worth much more than anything else. You know, Peter and the disciples, they were well on the way to knowing that too. And here's what they found. They found a man devoid of hypocrisy. They found a man whom they also knew to be God. A man who cleansed lepers merely by touching them. A man who knows the deepest and most secretive thoughts of our hearts. A man who can walk on water. A man who would engage a Samaritan woman in conversation and disclose to her the most intimate secrets of her life. A man who could heal and raise up a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. A man of such gentleness yet unyielding authority. A man of power and compassion. A man of love and justice. That's what Peter had seen. 
It's as if Peter said to him, no one ever spoke like you. No one ever acted like you. No one has ever been so strong and yet so meek, so tough and yet so tender, so authoritative and yet so gentle, so profound in his teaching, yet so simple in how you say it, so willing to be killed for sins he did not commit, so worthy of honor and yet so willing to be dishonored, so deserving of immediate and unqualified obedience and yet so patient with people like us, so capable of answering all of our questions and yet so willing to remain silent under abuse. There's no one like you, Jesus. Where do you suggest we go? To whom else do you suggest we give our lives? And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm going to take the bold step of faith and suggest that you are here because God is drawing you to him. And now is the time to come into that inner circle. Don't walk away. Stay, go deeper. Don't desert. You know, earlier on I mentioned the sadness in our lives of those who have deserted. It's painful. And I just want to encourage you. I want to encourage you that the best thing you can do <laughs> alongside prayer, of course, is to be an obedient disciple and model a life sold out for Jesus because it's attractive and people notice. You know, like the disciples being around Jesus and pledging allegiance, it's noticeable, it's contagious. To whom shall I go but you, Jesus? When we live a life of obedient trust to Jesus, we are radically different and people will see it. They will see us cope and hope in a different way. Cope and hope in a different way. Cancer and illness, to whom shall we go? Crushing disappointment, to whom shall we go? Broken relationships, to whom shall we go? Burnout from work, because that provides meaning and purpose and ultimately fails to do so. Where shall we go? Death, to whom shall we go? And on, and on. Do you know, in the First World War, 306 men, most of them very young, were shot at dawn for desertion. And this statue commemorates them. It's in Staffordshire. And the gospel message is simply this, that we have all deserted. We've all deserted. But instead of being punished, we are forgiven. We are reinstated with a royal rank. You are given royal robes and the royal seal of God's approval. You know, Peter would know all too well what it was to desert Jesus. He denied him three times, just when he needed him most. But he, he knew even more what it was to be forgiven and reinstated. His desertion didn't define him, and it doesn't need to define us. So as we continue to love those who perhaps have turned away, or on the fringes, let's be on the lookout. Let's be an obedient servant. Let's pray for them. Let's pray with people. But let's live an eye-catching life for him. Let's rely on the Holy Spirit. Let's ask. And we trust in the promise that Jesus did, what he said, that when they knock, the door will be opened. They will be opened. So Adam, I was going to ask you to come back up. I've just got a few final thoughts and, and words, really. 
Do you know, I think the words of our culture are this. Or it can be this. I think the words of our culture are, to live is fun and to die is a shame. To live is fun, to die is a shame. But because of what Jesus has done, we can hold on to better words. The words of Paul, who said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I just want to leave us with um, the words of John 8, 31 to 32. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know, my, my prayer for all of us is that you've seen and heard and experienced enough through the Holy Spirit, through the precious word of God, that you will always, you know, until the, the day you are called home, be devoted in the determined disciples. Should we say amen to that? Amen.